All right, welcome to another episode of Corner Memoirs of the Service Industry, and Happy New Year's, everybody. It's now 2021. Uh, I know I've been off uh, for a moment, um, but I'm back, hoping that we can keep these at a regular clip. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to continue the schedule of uh, once every week. I think it was a little tough to get um, keep up with getting people booked. So I'm going to try and get them like once every two weeks, definitely once a month uh, at the very minimum. Uh, so I appreciate everyone who's still sticking sticking by me and, and enjoying the shows. Uh, this week, uh, I bring on a friend, uh, Scott Sullivan. Uh, I bring him on because he has a pretty unique story, man. He uh, was starting, he was a first, a, a new hire at a restaurant who's their planet open uh, and their friends and family was uh, March 20th and we all got shut down on March 15th. So uh, yeah, we talk about how it was, um, that experience, what that experience was like trying to open up a brand new restaurant in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, we also get into a little bit of um, vintage uh, Amaro's and and kind of the pr- production and how the uh, how things have changed over the years in the production of the, in the spirits world. Um, kind of a cool in- interview there at the end. Uh, like I said, um, I'm planning to to get back in the swing of things with this. So I appreciate all those who stuck by me. Well, I took a little bit of time off to refocus, but we're back. It's 2021. Uh, it's cliche to say that this year will be better than the last, uh, but I think every year is better than the last. So. Um, yeah, sit back, enjoy, and let's get into service, shall we? You're listening to Corner Memoirs of the Service Industry, a podcast set out to document the lives of those who work in service and hospitality. I'm Erica Chopo, and I'll be running the front of the house tonight. I'm a 22-year vet in the bar and restaurant scene and have worked and managed everything from Michelin star restaurants to dive bars and everything in between. I'm sitting down with members of our industry to talk about why they love doing what they do and share some stories along the way. Around every corner is a new story, a new hire, and a new experience. All right, Scott, how we doing, buddy? Doing all right, doing all right. Yeah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Scott Sullivan. Uh, Scott, what is your, your... Bar manager, bar no, head bartender, head bartender over at Pearl in Pasadena. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to bring you on because uh, Pearl, you know, was a much anticipated restaurant opening up. You, you have some pedigree along with it, and we can get into it. But you guys were slated to open up. Was it actually March of 2020 or a little before was, March? Uh, our friends and family was going to be March 20th. Okay, and then so, for for know, those who right, don't know. Right uh, LA got shut down on March 15th. Um, yep. so right, right before your friends and family. Yeah. So we had, uh, we had a couple days. Uh, I mean, I was, I was involved a little bit earlier, but we had a few days of training with the whole staff. Um, I think it was, uh, Thursday, Friday, we were supposed to come back Monday through Wednesday and then open up on that Friday. Right. Um, and we did those two days of training and then didn't come back for four months cheese yeah months, so, whatever so, it was yeah um so what was that like man i mean like you you know i you i know you were there relatively close to the beginning you were one of the early hires of that uh, mm-hmm. uh establishment so you know it's it's uh what how do you say his last name chef dean yesharian yesharian so you know for those who don't know worked in new york is a french trained chef correct and and uh worked under a couple of Michelin star restaurants in his restaurant. So like in his career. Yeah. So having 
this being his like you know his his first restaurant under i mean i'm assuming his first restaurant i don't i didn't see any others under his resume but um this is his he's owner operator yeah yeah i can go over his 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 whole um cv is is really interesting actually so he worked uh for danielle balloud um uh at danielle which Mm -hmm. is a three michelin star restaurant in uh in new york worked for danielle for about 10 years uh on and off um he worked for restaurant gordon ramsay which is a uh, Gordon three Michelin star restaurant. Yeah. Uh, and then his first executive chef job was uh bar Balloud in London, which won best new restaurant in London. Uh, and then he came back to the States, uh, ran the Chateau Marmont, uh, before opening this. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I gotta imagine, you know, you being on the inside, how frustrating that must've been, you know, putting he's, I'm assuming had put, you know, been working on this in concept for for a good solid year maybe even longer trying to get this all the pieces moving here you go you're weeks away from you know friends and family and then you know the the world shuts down um what was the sense when you were there like was it you know obviously you guys have been open and you guys have been really successful since you've been open so clearly there was a mindset to like let's forge ahead but um talk us through those first few you know first few days, weeks of like when you guys got shut down, what was the thought process there? Um, it was very open-ended um, because obviously like no one knew what was happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about if the shutdown was even going to happen. Um, everyone was kind of, you know, it was up in the air. Um, our, our GM beverage director, wine director, uh, Roderick Daniels, mm-hmm. uh, he, uh, he was basically like, Hey, look, uh, we don't know. Like, yeah. uh, we'll let you know what happens. Um, and then the news started coming in because we were, I mean, I, I was working from, I came in to help design the bar, I helped design the menu, did all this, like was working, we're working towards the right thing. We finally got in our orders on that Friday or that right. next week. And then, yeah, it was just, like, oh, I guess we're not, I guess we're not going to open. Maybe it'll be a few weeks. Maybe it'll be a month, yeah. you know, whatever. And then the news starts, keeps rolling in, <laughs> keeps rolling in and keeps rolling in. Um, yeah. And it, it just, it gets, <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Uh, yeah. Cause we were, I mean, we were slated to be one of the big restaurant openings of the year. Yeah. Um, and we were going to, yeah, I think, I mean, we were, our food's really, Dean is, is an amazing chef. Actually, the whole team is kind of incredible. Uh, his wife, Pauline, uh, does all the social media um, yeah. and does a lot of the customer-facing um, stuff. And she's incredible, too. And she, Oh, and the design of the restaurant and mm-hmm. the flower arranging. And, you know, yeah. she's kind of an all-star. Um, she doesn't get as much credit as she should. And then uh, Roderick is an amazing sommelier. And he's a great GM, too. And we just have, like, this awesome team and everyone was like really we're like all right we got this this is going to be great yeah uh we're going to start off small because like small restaurant you know that those are the two owners pauline and and dean Mm -hmm. um wife and husband and so uh amazing team everyone super excited everyone (laughs) i mean we know we were gonna we're gonna crush it yeah uh and uh we were just waiting for friends and family which was gonna be like 300 people over two days or something right. like that, or maybe more. Um, 
And yeah, it was, yeah, it was really exciting. And then, yeah, we just didn't have anything. Didn't know, no news. I guess we all started applying for unemployment that yeah. week just in case. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't until June we put out our first food. Yeah. So okay. March through June. And Pasadena was, I mean, you guys had, you know, and here in LA, we're calling it Alfresco, which is a dumb name in my opinion, but mm-hmm. essentially you guys have taken over the the street side parking uh, yeah. and kind of extended your patio into about like five feet, six feet into the, into the street. Yeah. About that. Yeah. Right. So you're able to put, I think when I was there, maybe 20 tables, was it 20, like 15, 20? We have 30, we had uh, at max capacity, I think it was 34 seats. Okay. Um, but as the regulations started getting a little stricter, I think we got down to 28 seats with our max. Right. I mean, not ideal for a, you know, a fine dining experience and, you know, inside is with inside and what would have been outside. I'm assuming you probably would have been at least double that capacity, if not slightly more. So, you know, to be around 60, how did, how did, uh, there, you know, I'm always curious about this because, um, I think like there's a lot of fine dining restaurants that I know that, didn't have the ability to open up like patios, outdoor seating. So they've been strictly doing a new like to go model, which is, you know, they're, that's kind of like getting blood from a stone. It's kind of, you know, you're fixed on what you can do, but they're, they're getting by. Um, how did service change for you guys? How did the management change their, their outlook on how to provide that top level service. But obviously in the new, I mean, did anything really change or was it just like, Hey man, our sections are now outside. Let's give the same level of service. Or was there any certain tweaks or like, okay, maybe we can kind of step back on the fine dining and a little bit more about just making customers happy. Um, our service actually never changed in terms of like steps of service. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, we were really lucky uh, to have Roderick like kind of sitting there making sure that we all were doing, I mean, I was the first server. So I was the only, I was the only server in the restaurant. So we started, the the only difference would be our team didn't exist. Okay. So, I mean, through the first month of service, we probably had like, it was me and Roderick on the first day. We had a couple people come in to help on the second day, just work for free with us. Um, just literally helping us out because they were friends with Roderick. Um, and they, they're the only, I mean, they, the only reason why we got through the second day, because man, right. it was rough. It was, you know, Somalia has to do all the wine. Oh, actually we, we opened, we were open for indoor at that point. Um, so we opened indoor dining in June. It was only, we, I think it was open for around three weeks. We mm-hmm. only did it for a week because right. then it shut, it shut down yeah. when we um, did that. The steps of service were all the same. Uh, everything was the same. We just didn't have a large team because mm-hmm. uh, we kept everybody on, but no one was available because it kind of just happened. Um, so a lot of people were on the other side of the country. A lot of people were right. outside of the country. So you know, whatever. Uh, one one um, one of our one of my coworkers had to. Uh, she's a primary caretaker for her uh, father or grandfather, and she had to leave uh, because she couldn't be around. Um, right. Yeah. Anybody which was crazy. So, you know, it's just, we just don't have a team. Um, so it was a lot more difficult than it should have been. And mm-hmm. then it, when we started getting uh, more and more on the team, hiring new people, doing new things, uh, then we switched to outdoor and nothing changed. Everything was the same. 
obviously my job is a lot different because I was bartender. Yeah. And we don't have a bar. <laughs> and now, now uh, you're now you're migrating over to server and you know Yeah, which yeah. admittedly I'm not great at. Um <laughs> especially I mean I can I can get by, but fine dining server is not uh it's like, like I'm a bartender, I like to talk. So yeah. it's not not what you want to do. Yeah. Um I, so, I personally then, go, I like, honestly, like, you know, it's not as fine dining, but like when we were at faith, I think some of the best servers there were the ones who were able yeah. to bounce between talking a little bit and being personal. I think that goes a long way as a server. In my opinion, I've never enjoyed as a customer, a server who's like stoic com- completely. Uh, I feel yeah. like I'm, I'm, I'm not welcomed. I feel like I'm just, they're trying to turn and burn me. Um, so I think yeah. that goes as a former bartender turned server in my career. I feel like yeah. the bartending, the bartender in me made me a better server. So I'm sure you're doing yeah, just I, fine. I also agree. It, I, I also realized the situation w- that we were in, which we don't even have, we didn't have uh busters. We didn't have runners. Right. Yeah. I was running all the food, busing all the tables, getting every glass, every water, everything. So <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what, because turn and burn. I'll tell you what, because I think for, 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 for me, you know, I had done some serving here and there. A lot of the bars that I started off in my career were like very small, like divey bars, uh, maybe like one cocktail bar. But when I first started serving, it was in a small bistro where there were no bus mm-hmm. staff. And it was five of us, maybe four of us a night because it was small. Uh, it was about like five table sections a piece. And it was, we were the runners, we were the bussers and we all pooled. So we all ran and bust everyone's table uh, for the first, oh, I got the, cool. I got the pool gone because, you know, not to pat myself on the back too much, but I was like earning a shit ton in that place. And then seeing my, my tips get divvied out and like cut in half. And I was, I told the manager, I was like, I can't keep like, either you got to get them going out of here or, or like get rid of the pool. But I digress. Um, but yeah, it made me a better server because it's, it's, you, you end up having better restaurant eyes at the end of it when you have to do everything. I think when you're a server and you rely too much on a backstaff, um, you, you get, you get a little lazy and a little complacent. And, uh, I, I always believe that I think if you're doing everything, you're going to be better, uh, overall. So, um, Again, you're yeah. getting best training because I know this isn't what you want to do, but I feel like you could be slotted in in any fine dining restaurant now and just be killing it. Um, because yeah, I mean it, it is great experience. Uh, what I eventually uh, fell into because of uh, some other things happening, I basically became I became the only expo in the in the restaurant. Okay, so now I'm expoing um, slash helping cook. It's an interesting. <laughs> Interesting scenario. So I'm on the path, uh, expoing, but I'm doing all the soup, uh, preparation. Right. And I'm like a second eyes for, uh, chef for garmage seasoning and like plating. And then also, um, like using, that sounds lame, but using a salamander. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just like making sure nothing burns yeah. using that for toasting, stuff like that. Yeah. And, and it, it, that fits my, <laughs> I have more kitchen experience than I do uh, serving experience, so that fits me <laughs> a lot better. Right, um, and we have some extremely amazing servers now um, that are like really awesome, and we have some uh, we have some more back staff as well, which is great. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, first few weeks were uh, were rough. Right, um, yeah, I bet. the first first day opening because we also don't have didn't have uh, any training because we kind of just like all right, we're gonna go. Um, you know, first day, 12 covers feels like 60. Yeah. I just, yeah. 
Especially it, when uh, you're when you're flying by the seat of your pants and 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 the direction isn't quite there, and you know you end up you're not in a rhythm yet, so you're like bumping into walls essentially, and and just trying to find yeah. your way. Um, so you guys, uh, you know, you got a staff going. Um, we're now into the fall. Things are kind of in full swing. Pasadena, you're like right there on essentially a restaurant row. I don't know if it's officially called that, but there's a few restaurants like up and down yeah. the street. Um, and now you're kind of in full swing. Then everything gets shut down again um, around the end of the year. Um, mm-hmm. What's it going on now? Uh, clearly, you're not doing outdoor seating anymore because we're not allowed to. So no. how has the restaurant um, been able to transition uh, yeah, so so we were doing outdoor outdoor dining for yes, uh, like a few weeks after everybody else got shut down, and then we got shut down by the state as well. Yeah. Um, but those three weeks were were interesting. The we had cops coming by every night to make sure. After the first few nights, no one was really sure about the curfew, and we were getting conflicting information right. from Pasadena or from yeah. people that were close to Pasadena or whoever we're getting information from. Um, that we didn't have to follow curfew either. So a little clarification so, for those who don't know, yeah. Pasadena, LA County shut down outdoor dining in Pasadena with their, cause they have their own health department. They kind of have their mm-hmm. own city council. They made the decision as a city to ignore LA's guidance and stay open with outdoor dining because they felt that their, um, their mitigation of everything was being handled in a different or better way than LA was. So that lasted, you said about two weeks and then you guys, the Something stage, like that. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. It, so, it was nice because we were crazy busy those, yeah, those two like, weeks that we were open. Only game in town um, pretty much. Yeah. And then, and then we got shut down or then, then we were getting the police every night. Um, every night at 10 o'clock on the dot, police would show up and like, face like tell us, slash tell our customers to leave, uh, which was really uncomfortable and not great. Um, and we have, we have an hour and a half turn time for all of our tables. Yeah. Um, but souffles take 20 minutes and if they order, if they order four courses, it's, you know, you're pushing that hour and a half pretty close. Yeah. Um, and so that hour and a half might be at 10 o'clock and that's not, that's not the best for customers. Right. Um, and so they were really, really, excuse me, uh, really, really stringent on everything. Uh, and then they started getting, like, we started having people measuring our tables. We started having, wow. you know, every, every single thing that you could possibly have. Um, we didn't get, we didn't get dinged for anything. Right. That's great. Um, uh, it was just, we just had to really make sure that everything was by the book, yeah. um, which we were already doing before, but it's, you know, six inches one one way or six inches the other um it potentially could make us get shut down or yeah. not yeah um which is not great uh but yeah so then and i feel like because of their because of their uh reaction to all of that because they had to kind of show that we were the best um the best co- co- or the best dining in la and like we were following all the rules and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff they shut down those restaurants um, they reopened those restaurants, they shut down more restaurants. They just kept like going back and forth. And then when the state finally shut down everything, I feel like now because they're so strict, they don't have the ability to open in the way that they, uh, they should be able to, like, I like, don't know if you like Pasadena as a whole or, or, or you guys, yeah, Pasadena as whole. Okay. So they just voted the other day to allow all the 
the parks that everybody put up um, to allow everybody to leave their tables outside for people to just sit down and eat. Okay. They just voted on that, I think, last week. Okay. So um, kind of a so to-go then, scenario and you can just sit down at a table with your to-go food. Exactly. Right. Meanwhile, South Bay, I don't know if you've been anywhere south of no, LA not. right now. Yeah. Fully open, indoor dining, indoor bars. Um, yeah. LA, uh, Orange County, same way. No one's getting hurt. No one's, no one's doing anything. People are advertising on the outside of their buildings that are open for dining and dining mm-hmm. in. Um, that is not allowed currently in California. If anybody didn't know that <laughs> still, <laughs> yeah. everybody is shut down. Um, yeah, no one cares. No one, everyone. Yeah. It's just, it's kind of a cluster. I, um, I, I personally walk this fine line of, you know, the, the libertarian in me, the, you know, the don't tread on me type kind of goes, yeah, just, you know, you have every right as a business owner to make your own decisions. But then the the realist in me realizes that the people who keep doing this are making it tougher for the mm-hmm. ones who, because here's the thing, right? You know, there is different levels of, of dining and there's different neighborhoods and different communities and restaurants mean different things to different people, right? So yeah, I think that in a city like, you know, in the South Bay, like if you say like, you know, um, go down to Long Beach or something where, that community, you know, might be slightly more blue collar as far as a whole, like less of the fancy restaurants and more of taverns and, you know, um, family oriented type dining that it's important for them to be open to serve their community because, you know, it's a, it's a much needed break from the monotony of the lockdown. And I think they're doing a better service to their community by being open, not to mention there isn't a ton of money there. They aren't pulling in millions of dollars in revenue every year. They're, they're more mom and pop in orientation. So I'm like, yeah, be open. You should, because you deserve to make a living. But then because we're so connected and we're in, you know, like we're in this, our state's the size of a country and is really like four states in one state that what they're doing down there affects us because the reality of the situation is it's not the local economy that we're concerned about. It's the fact that if San Pedro's hospitals are overrun, they go to San Diego or they come up here to LA. And that's the thing that I don't think the average person understands is it's not about your hospital intake right now. It's about the neighboring ones because like Ventura County right now, their hospitals are open. So LA sends their overflow up to Ventura. So eventually because if LA is not taking it as seriously as Ventura, which isn't the case, but if it is the case, then they get our overflow. So then they get more restrictions put down because they can't um, handle the same amount of patients. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's the missing part of the conversation that people don't get. It's again, it's not about you as an individual or as an individual company. It's about us as a community. So I get torn yeah. with that. At the same time, I'm like, yeah, fuck them. Be open. Like, make your money. You Because there isn't enough support structure from California to help them out, you know? Yeah. Um, so I I get torn. But at the same time, if yeah, I'm, more they I'm do that, to rest. Yeah. the more they do that, the, the longer it's going to take for the rest of us to get, you know, back up and running. So, yeah. I'm not opposed to restaurants opening. Uh, if they can get away with it, they can get away with it. It's 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 the problem of like, all right, if, if everyone knows the South Bay is now open, then everyone drives up to an hour to get to those places because they want like LA or California in general is a driving culture. It's not, 
yeah. not in New York where you don't have a car or you and you take public transit or you go across town. Right. It is you drive and it's yep. really easy to drive and you drive everywhere. So like I know back in my hometown in Fresno, uh, as soon as Fresno shut down because it had bad cases back in March, uh, Clovis was still open, which is like the equivalent of Santa Monica, Venice, like mm-hmm. right butted up against each other where you kind of don't know which one right. is which. Um, and uh, everyone just went to Clovis to dine. So then the Clovis number is spiked and then they had to shut down Clovis too. I remember it's it's like when they started banning smoking in in bars. I remember, ironically, um, uh, a town in Texas, I forget which one, was one of the first in the country to ban smoking in bars. So what happened? Everyone just went to the next county over to those bars. And within about four or five months, the county that banned smoking, most of those bars started closing down because everyone just went to the next county over to go. Because you're it's something that people. I mean, and I look at it the same way is like that growing pains of maybe two years of people really raging and saying, hey, the fine is not worth the loss in revenue or isn't as bad as the loss in revenue. So find me for allowing people to smoke in my establishment. I know in Hollywood, a lot of clubs were like that, like, fuck it, give me the fine because it, 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 having people smoke in the VIP lounge is allowing me to sell hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, monthly of booze. So like, fuck it, I'll pay the $5,000 fine. Um, I think that it took a while before that became normal. So I think a lot of the restrictions we're starting to see, you know, there's a big growing pains right now and people are raging against it. Um, And I think, think that eventually there'll be a period where just, this just becomes the way of life. The only difference is, is, you know, depending on who you talk to, you know, I don't think the smoking thing was as dangerous as what we're going through right now. Clearly it's not good for you long-term, yeah. but it wasn't such an immediate threat. It's kind of what we're facing it. So, um, yeah, I don't I know. So we could, uh, we could do something and we pass the net cause yeah, we're, we're doing to go now. So, good. um, we've been to go, doing to go, uh, we had our full menu available to go, which was, um, a lot, uh, yeah. there's a lot to do. A lot of storage, a lot of, you know, it's, it's a lot. And so, uh, uh, I think it was two weeks ago. I don't know. Uh, sorry. It was before new year's, uh, before Christmas, actually, uh, we decided to do, a um, a dinner set, uh, kind of celebration Perfect. meal with suck, yep. suckling pig and truffle salad and a couple other things, um, for, uh, yeah, for Christmas and new year's and kind of uh, some days around those as well. And it was really successful. Okay. Um, we were, I think the last, we were kind of like the first day we didn't do as, we didn't do as many covers as we could have um, mm-hmm. on the days uh, leading up to Christmas. Christmas mm-hmm. Eve was I think 90, 90 orders. Um, right. And then uh, New Year's Eve, we just shut off restrictions for however many people. Mm-hmm. We're actually, no, we restricted a little bit. We were doing three orders every or three uh, parties every 15 minutes. Okay. Um, so New Year's Eve, I think we had 150 orders. Okay. Wow. Which was uh, insane. Yeah. Like, great. Yeah. More than we were doing in indoor in outdoor dining. Yeah. So like, it was great. Um, so now we're switching over to that model. Um, and we're doing, uh, every week we're doing new regions of France and doing a whole new menu every week. Yeah. Good. Um, off that. So we did, uh, we didn't do a region first. Uh, we did Paris, 
um, and just foods that are uh, very popular in Paris. And then mm-hmm. uh, we're starting Bordeaux tomorrow. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, I believe the in in these times, I've always kind of, you know, I, I know you have had conversations about this. I believe that eliminating choice for for the customer ends up providing them with a better experience. Because if you give them too many options, um, it can bog down the kitchen. And when right now, when when there's so much importance on being uh, lean and mean and being able to operate with such minimal waste, I think offering a full menu is, is, is shooting yourself in the foot, having something small, yeah. more curated, and um, it allows you to control the product costs. It allows you to provide a better experience overall to the guests. So uh, kudos to that. I think that's, yeah. that's a smart way to go about it right now. Um, my, my best dining in during quarantine has been Vespertine, actually. I don't know if you've uh, no. checked what they're doing out. No. So uh, the two Michelin star restaurant, uh, best team, mm-hmm. uh, written by Jordan Kahn. Uh, normally they do like a, a crazy extravagant, like you change levels depending on what courses you're on. And okay. you have like a really amazing uh, restaurant. I haven't been because it's, I think, $350 a person. Um, <laughs> uh, something something around there, $300 a person. Uh, but um yeah, uh, their to their to go, their takeout has been incredible. Okay, so I've done three three of them so far. I, first one I did was uh, food of the Maya, and so yeah, I think it was like sixty five bucks a person, and it okay. was uh, like twelve courses or ten courses of uh, all food traditionally cooked and traditionally sourced from Mayan cuisine. Oh wow! Uh, and then I did uh, a Cuban one, and because he is Cuban. Then he did uh, all the food his grandmother, like all of his grandmother's recipes. Right. And it was that sounds awesome. Insane. Um, <laughs> then I did, I did one. Oh, I did a, a collaboration with Sean Brock, the Southern chef. So it was a Southern, extremely high-end Southern cuisine awesome. um, meal, which I've never been able to have at his restaurant. I've never been to go to his restaurant. So uh, yeah. this was awesome. And all three were incredible. Then they give stories. They give you, they send you a whole like curated website. They go line by line every every dish, and they give that either a history or a personal note or uh, oh, that's fun. Why yeah. it serves? Yeah, it's incredible. And so that's, cool. that's kind of why what I want to where I want to take this like regions of France thing too. I'm I'm doing a little bit of the research currently um, yeah, cool. for uh, for giving a little pamphlet out. All right. Um, that sounds actually really like a smart idea. I mean, it's essentially, I think, I think a, a, a good business model It's funny how most people haven't done this right now. This is essentially would have been dine LA part. It would have been in the middle of dine LA right now. And I think that taking that dine LA approach of small, this is just kind of a tasting menu of what we do. You do that with your to go model. I don't see how that can't be successful because you know, yeah. You know, you lower, you make sure that you're as profitable as you can on the items as an establishment, but also offering as much of a value to the customer. You're going to get more orders out the out the window and get more eyes on your product. So when the world does open back up, inevitably here, um, that if you've been able to survive, that you have kind of this captured audience of what you do. Um, so when they can go back, yeah. they will. Um, I want to switch gears slightly. I want to. Mm-hmm. I think there's 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 something you're into that I think is 
I've always been, you know, enjoyed about. And I, I don't know if a lot of people are aware of this as a market, but you are very much into vintage spirits, especially like vintage yeah. Am- Amaros, right? Um, how did you get into that? Talk to us a little bit about where that love of, you know, old, old liquor came from. So I haven't gotten much into old uh, liquor uh, because it is an extremely uh, pricey right. endeavor. Yeah. Um, but Amaro uh, was was uh, my first um, kind of foray into vintage um, spirit uh, or vintage alcohols. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I I started bartending or when I my first bar job was at the Ponte mm-hmm. under uh, Ryan Wainwright. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually went over to Faith and Flower with him uh, and the whole team as well. Uh, and that's kind of, that was my introduction into the bar world. Um, before that, I was in coffee and uh, a bunch of other jobs, uh, <laughs> tech and yeah. Uh, and so uh, the, the main thing that I learned at Ponzi that I think was kind of invaluable was like Ryan taught me how to balance. Uh, drinks and Ryan and the whole team. Is, right. uh, I'll keep saying that because you know, it was a whole, um, it takes a team to mm-hmm. do that whole thing. Um, but the main thing I learned was how to balance drinks and uh, I learned the vast majority of the spirit collection that we had there, which was insane. I think it was yeah. the largest Amaro collection in, uh, in LA. Okay. Um, over 90 Amaro uh, wow. on the back shelf plus uh, vermouth um, in the dozens, I don't, I don't even know how many we had because they yeah. uh, you know, we had a bunch in the back room and then we had a lot in the fridge and I never counted them. Um, <laughs> but yeah, over 90 tomorrow, which I pretty much knew all of them at right. the time. Wow. Uh, and something that Ryan used to do is he used to buy, so you're not allowed to sell, uh, vintage, uh, spirits. Okay. Um, which most people don't realize unless you get it through because you have to get anything you sell at a restaurant through a distributor right um so that's to prevent against fraud and all that kind of stuff so there is one place in chicago that sells um that is a distributor that can sell to a restaurant that um can sell those things but Mm -hmm. if you have vintage spirits on your back bar it's usually not allowed to sell so what we would do is just if somebody cool came in like he would buy a bunch of stuff himself Mm -hmm. um from a guy he met in Italy once and he just has him send him, I, he never right. told us our his source, which I'm kind of mad about. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he would just text him like, Hey, I got this new bottle. Do you want it? And then ship it to him. Yeah. Uh, which is great. Um, so we would have it up there. I would taste them. The thing that's crazy. And this is like where it really set or got like hit home for me where we would have side by side of the new product. Right. And then maybe six or we would have up to four of the vintage products from different decades. Okay. So we would have a, here's a 1960s, here's a 1950s, here's a, you know, here's a 1980s and then here's the new product. Right. And so we would do side by sides of all that. And that was, it, you can see how much different, I mean, obviously it changed over time um, in the bottle. Mm-hmm. But you can see how the recipe changed, how, when it changed, okay. all this kind of stuff. And you kind of, those products are gone. And they so what, what's like, what, what, like, uh, just like, a you know, for those who are uneducated, what's kind of the basic changes from like, say, just something like 40 years ago to, to now, what, what are some of those changes you were tasting? Um, 
I don't want to like be controversial, but I'll be a little bit controversial. Go for it. Um, most of the products that are very well known, I think, got way more synthetic. Okay. Um, or extracts, and they're not using actually whole products, or gotcha. they change. Um, there is a through note that I noticed on <clears throat> most most tomorrows. And I think it was sugar and, mm-hmm. and the unrefined sugar uh, or less refined sugar that they were using um, back before the the eighties. Right. Um, and you can kind of taste similarities between all of the Italian Amaros, um, where there's a backbone of like molasses or, or unrefined sugar. Um, that is, uh, yeah. And so, and, and the new stuff is just a little too clean and it kind of lost all of its character. Gotcha. And, and also it depends on, on, this is something a lot of other people don't know as well. Depends on where you're buying your your uh, your alcohols. So Campari, for instance, Campari tastes nothing like the old Campari. Um, right. uh, Tempest Fugis, um, what is their product? Uh, their product is actually the closest uh, remaining thing to the original Campari recipe. Right. Um, I just remember with Campari, I remember it was real recently in recent history, they, they moved over to red number five or whatever that dye is to color it yeah, and moved away from cocachina beetle. So, cause I remember when, um, St. George's Bruto Americano came out, that was their big selling point is, Hey, we still use cocachina beetles to color, mm-hmm. which adds in a slight flavored profile to it as well. Cause you're using, uh, you know, an actual like insect to color it. So there's going to have some byproduct yeah. in it when you do it. Um, yeah, so, uh, Grand Classico. I just I just looked up the the, the Tempest Fuji product. Cool. Grand Classico is actually the closest uh, to Campari's original formula. Right, because um, Bruto is a little light. You know, it isn't as well, Bruto. Yeah, yeah, Bruto is an American company. Uh, Tempest Fuji was actually uh, John is a, is a is a good dude. He's not you know he's American as well. Okay, um, but his uh, I believe he I, I had a like three hour conversation with him one night. Um, I think his friend was a historian in Italy and just mm-hmm. keeps uh, finding a bunch of distillery manuals from the distillery is not like a published recipe. It's just like, here's how we train people. Gotcha. So he has a bunch of antique and I mean, not around distillery manuals and he plotted them all on in Excel Oh, cool. um, every recipe, every like, so here's this type of Amaro here's every recipe that I have and here's all of the ingredients that are similar. And then he would go through and then kind of concoct a recipe based around the historic recipe. Right. Um, and then he has some, a place in Italy, uh, make it for him. That's awesome. Um, or he buys a distillery that, or he buys from a distillery that has been making something since the 1700s and then uh, doing that. See, I, I, I love that people are doing that because it's what I, it's what I fell for. And I was duped, but it was why I really like was gung ho behind Templeton Rye when they came out. Cause I bought into the story of, Hey, we found this old bootleggers recipe in a barn. We believe this is what Al Capone's product was, but he called the good stuff. So this is a prohibition uh, era rye only to find out that they were getting their barrels from Indiana's food packing company, like everybody else. And that there was nothing special about it at all. Uh, yeah. and I remember when those first like six months, when that product came out, I bought that hook, line and sinker, but I do respect the idea of, you know, there was 
a certain level of care. Cause I agree with you. I think that now since things are such mass produced that things like Campari, things like Fernet are, are, you know, cult favorites. And they're these huge bar staples that you have to start cutting corners in how you produce it. Cause you're producing it at such a level that when you, if you can find those old recipes to actually take the yeah. level of care again um, and make them the way that they made them, you know, even 40 years ago before, um, before the uh, profits were the only guiding force in, in a company's mind. Um, I think that's something awesome. I, ho- I I wish some of that information was more readily available. More people were able to do that. I mean, clearly it wouldn't be as special, but I just think that when we talked, you, know, you and I talked a lot about like artisanal stuff back in the day, like, you know, everything put artisanal in front of it, but like, this is artisanal to me. This is actually being what the food world looks as artisanal. Let's source heirloom products. Let's try to make things as authentic as they used to. I think artisanal and small batch started becoming kind of synonymous with each other and, and they don't mean yeah. the same thing. Just because you make it a small batch doesn't mean you're being like artisanal in my opinion. So especially yeah. in like the and spirit spirit world, I feel like they threw that word around a lot and they, it didn't mean what they yeah. thought it meant. Yeah. Well, so two things come to mind. I, I, I lost my train of thought earlier, um, but uh, where your product is also produced is, is a really big, uh, is a really interesting thing. Campari in different countries is produced by Smith and Cross, the rum. Okay. So if you don't know Smith and Cross, it's a fantastic uh, rum, uh, dark rum that a lot of tiki bars use. Mm-hmm. Um, and they produce the base product for Campari okay. for those things. So it's produced by Smith and Cross. It is a completely different product. Gotcha. So for different markets, they make different, uh, different Camparis and different uh, even like the liquor changes depending on where you are in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really interesting when you start getting into, and this isn't publicly available either, unless you do a lot of deep digging with a lot of nerdy people online. Um, <laughs> or if somebody comes from that country and tells you about these things, there's kind of no way to, to figure these things out. Um, but same with, but that's, that is a really big problem with the spirits industry in general. There's not a lot of good information. Right. Um, and there's things that bartenders seem to know. And this is, the, uh, tequila is my, my biggest uh, problem uh, in the industry is because there's no information that's actually reputable that, you, that a public person can readily access for finding out what is a good product, what is not taking advantage of people, what is not right. ruining the countryside, what is not, like they're not picking early, all these things. There's no reputable source of information for that. Right. Um, and I don't know what it's going ever going to take to do that, but that's that's something would that would be incredible. I know Gracias Madre, um, fire director there, is an incredible resource. We have to go there and talk to him. Yeah, and so he'll throw out information to people that are there, but he doesn't publish it either. No one publishes these things. No mm-hmm. one talks about these things, and then uh, the general public, I would say, ninety nine percent of everybody just thinks Patron is a really good product. And then what about Julio 1942 is really worth the money. I mean, I had a buddy of mine, Dylan, who worked for a, um, I want to say like Casamigos or something. And when he went down to Mexico and went to, to the farm where Casamigos is produced and he came back and he goes, the amount, the amount of information 
of agave spirits that Americans don't know could fill the Grand Canyon. And um, I think part of the problem, and I think it's similar to things like Cognacs and Armanacs. I always think that there's there's a a good correlation there. um, For those who don't know, um, 90%, about 90% of all Cognacs produced in France get shipped out worldwide. And they, oh, sorry. Um, yes, shit gets shipped out all worldwide and they hold on to about 10% of the really good stuff within, within country. But then you look at Armagnacs it's the reverse. 90% of Armagnacs stay in France and only 10% go out to the market. Um, when it comes to agave spirits, we still, as consumers here, don't know a lot and we're fed a lot of crap because, uh, you know, without obviously being controversial again, is it's a very con- uh, cartel controlled business. Um, it's a government controlled business as well. Uh, so much so that the Mexican wine industry is suffering because they do not want it to take off and dip into any profits they're making off of tequila. Um, so they, they, they tax it at such a high rate for export. Um, so it's actually, you know, it's, it's more expensive to get, you know, that here in the States because they don't want it taking off in popularity. So I think the answer to your, your questions, I think it ends up being, if we can break up the stronghold of the tequila industry, you start to have more, more, um, um, you know, uh, transparency. I also think, um, uh, rich celebrities should stop going down and sponsoring tequila companies. But, um, yeah, I think that's damaging. More than it's their actual. I, I forgot about this. The the biggest resource that anybody can use, and this is something that it took uh, took me a little bit longer to figure out. If you find a tequila company that you that you think is good, and you do your research on, and you've proven that they are good, like Sambra Azul is the, yeah. in my opinion, like the the benchmark of how a tequila company should act. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at the nom on the back, um, N O M, and then a number. And because it is a government controlled thing, there is full transparency into where it's distilled, who it's distilled by, um, where it's, where it's made, uh, like how it's bottled, all this kind of thing, as much information as you can. And then you can look at the other products that are involved with that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's something that is really interesting as well. And actually, um, Siembra, um, is doing a lot of, uh, great things with, transparency for just telling people how little everyone has paid for everything, right. which is a not enough money. Yeah. Basically slavery. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, it, and a lot of people don't know about celebrity thing either is that they aren't even really involved. Like people think that these celebrities are going in and they're buying these companies, but that's yeah. not what they do. They're approached by these tequila companies yeah. to sell their new product. And that's their sales tactic is to yep. attach it. I mean, because of George Clooney, basically. I think, honestly, and I I could just be buying into a little bit more of the propaganda. I I would imagine knowing of the type of person Clooney portrays himself to be, I feel like out of everyone, he's probably a little bit more involved in what's going on because I think he has a vested personal interest into stuff like that. Like, I don't think he puts his name, he isn't somebody who slaps his name on everything. Now the like Brian Cranston one, I think is strictly just exactly that. It's just like, Hey guys, here, here's the, the, the dose brothers or whatever the hell they call it, tequila or mezcal company. And I don't think they have any idea of what's happening. I think that's strictly just a, 
a um, sponsorship play. Um, I, also, I mean, from what I know about Casamigos' production, I you shouldn't want to put his name on that. I but, look. I I I'm not saying you know, he's informed. Yeah. I'm saying I think he probably digs slightly deeper than everybody else. I also understand it's a very secretive cartel controlled business. And even a lot of, as you know, a lot of the smaller farms, smaller manufacturers, like the companies that actually try to make a difference, they still have to deal with these cartels in some level to get the product out. Um, even if they're trying to do as good as they can, I still think there's, yeah. there's a roadblock there that is hard for them to get through. Um, yeah. Everyone should look up uh, David Suro if they haven't heard of him before and start okay. look, uh, follow him on Instagram, read all of his posts. He, he's the owner and importer of he's Suro Imports, who imports uh, all of the Sambra products, which are his uh, products, or he works with the farms directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, he also imports some rum, some Mexican rum now, which is uh, going to be great. Right. Um, Paranube is him. I have a really um, nice Mexican is, gin on my, on my back bar at home. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, they, they they call it an agave gin, and I think it's just because they use some agave to in in the manufacturing of it. But I, it's definitely not a tequila gin by any means. But I, you know, there is that slight you know earthiness like, yeah. more to it. But yeah, it's, it's also right. be flavored because gin doesn't really have any restrictions. So they could yeah. also add there's a thing called tequila flavoring, which most a lot of people don't know about either. Yeah, uh, which is it's, you can just buy on Amazon. Yep, and it's also uh, that's what Montezuma is. But for those who don't yep. know, but if you go to like any shitty bar and you get tequila and they pull out a bottle, this is Montezuma tequila. You're drinking tequila flavored vodka, not actually tequila. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can get, you can get uh caramel coloring and tequila flavor product on, uh, on Amazon right now. Cause I tried to buy it. Uh, <laughs> I want to figure, I want to taste what it's like. Um, but it's, uh, or it's in my cart right now, actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting because most people don't realize how much sugar, and artificial flavor and uh or it's glycerin not necessarily sugar mm-hmm. uh sugar artificial flavor and caramel color if something is called amber does not mean it was aged right um just like tequila gold is not aged either tequila or gold yeah. yeah amber or gold whatever it is it's not an aged product it's a the flavor or it's a colored product and a flavored product yeah and they uh yeah <laughs> it's yeah it's not great most yeah. uh, actually you're allowed to believe up to, I, I might be wrong on the number, but I think it's around 5% um, caramel coloring in any tequila product. Right. So like 1942 and all these things, they can up the uh, caramel yeah. coloring just so they can look fancier, even though no one in Mexico uh, aged their products until Jack Daniels came around. <laughs> yeah. So they, uh, we we forced us Americans. We forced them to uh, to age our age their tequila products so it would sell better in the in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, look, I I I, you know, I'm a I love my myself in Añejo every now and then, but I I, yeah. I definitely think that you know pure distilled you know unaged agave spirits is kind of where it's at because you actually can taste yeah. taste the tuar in products. I always feel like agave f- falls in line more with wines than it does with most spirits because there is a tour aspect of it regions taste different you know blue agave in the southern region versus blue agave in the mountains is going to taste different much like yeah. you know the same pinot noir grapes um i wish I the company it's different yeah. different 
species of, yep. of agave as well. That's kind of why I gravitated to it years ago was because it was like a truer expression of the agave plant. Yes, there's some smokiness into it that can get in the way of tasting it, but at least you have an opportunity to taste different flavors. You know, it's like hops in the same way. You know, a lot of people still are uneducated about, they like their hazy IPAs because it tastes like pineapple. And so they think there's pineapple in it, but it's not. It's the hops just have that flavor profile when you steep them for a certain period of time at a certain point of, you know, the brewing process. So um, that's, what's great about, you know, using plants to distill stuff, you know, um, same thing with rums. I mean, I just, again, I think that most of us just think I'm going to drink Captain Morgan Morgan's when there's a, like, you know, you're a big rum guy. There's a, there's a wealth mm-hmm. of better products out there that taste, you know, way different from, you know, two rums never taste the same. If you actually yeah. are going to these places that are doing it properly and, and not for, you know, the profit. I would say for the general person, actually, I know we were talking about tequila being difficult and not transparent. Rum is even worse. Rum is the hardest, is the hardest uh, category of spirit to really wow. get a grasp on. Um, there's so much like, just the legislations involved with different countries of like how much sugar is allowed in your rum, how much it's like, it's crazy. There's yeah. so many different types of rum, so many different terroirs, so many different types of distilling. Basically like there's, it's hard to even categorize because it's, you're like, cool, there's this French style rum versus Spanish style rum, but you're like, all right, well that's French style rum that's done in Spanish style. And that's, there's yeah. an exception over here and there's an exception over here and there's this person over here that's doing a completely different thing and now there's mexican rum which is a completely different style and then yeah, yeah. i mean look you want to go back to some of the old like like you know cartel run stuff you just look at the sugar trade man the sugar trade mm-hmm. is one of the big reasons why slave trade even started in the, on the planet uh it was one of the first you know multi-millionaire multi-million dollar industries uh hundreds of years ago uh yeah the sugar trade is no joke and i definitely think that you know when you start looking at you know the caribbean and these these countries that are producing it they have long 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 history with um that being the real currency within their countries is is the sugar trade the export import export and the control of that so yeah i mean that makes all the sense in the world um yeah I'm I'm a but little shocked. I'm a little shocked that we don't have that same kind of shit going on here with when it comes to like whiskeys and everything. But at the same time, you know, one can make whiskey out of their their basement if they if they chose to because it's you know, I think wheat's wheat's a little bit like you can just grow it and on the back. It's a little little bit more accessible of a product uh, than a lot of these other other things. But well, and we as Americans did one of the best. Uh, the best things ever, which is created bourbon and yeah. protected bourbon. And now we have a protected product that yeah. is one of the only, only American products. Um, and yeah, it, I mean, you can get, no matter the price of bourbon, it is tasty. Yeah. And that's the best thing about dive bars is you can walk in and order a bourbon for five bucks and yeah. enjoy your day versus whiskey. You don't really know what's going on. Yeah. And then yeah, I always, that was kind of like, I started going away from, bourbons because they it is they're all the same they're all the same and the and and the and degrees of difference between paying you know top dollar versus uh well it was so minuscule like i don't have the best palate in the world and i i even think some of the best palates in the world are hard to really find 
drastic differences between them all, but there are there. But I think it's just for the average consumer, man, just just buy your buy yourself a seven dollar glass of bourbon and Probably. just be happy with it. Yeah. Even the best palates in the world are there's something to enjoyment versus necessarily the best as well. Yeah. Um, if you're going to a bar, you don't necessarily want the most expensive bourbon you can possibly have and the most interesting bourbon. Sometimes you just want Buffalo Trace. Yeah. Sometimes you just, just want, I mean, mellow corn is my, is my guilty pleasure American with give choice. Kentucky um, gentleman. I'm a big fan of Kentucky. Oh, gentleman. Yeah. yeah. Old crow's great. Yeah. You know, all these things are great and you're going to enjoy them dramatically. And most whiskey bars will have them. Yeah. Um, and you're going to pay way less and you're going to have a good time. Yeah. Sometimes you don't want their, like wine aged or wine finished in this for 10 years. And then you got, you know, whatever the hell it is. Were, were 25 you, for way too much money. Were you bartending about like, I want to say like six years ago when the bar, the, so it was about six years ago was around the time where the, the bar community started really learning like that, that Weller is essentially the oh, same, I remember the, that. same juice as Pappy. And so we were able to have like, Weller was like a $10 shot almost anywhere here in Los Angeles. And for those of us in the know, we were drinking it at these nice places. It's great. It's great juice. Um, but essentially it's exactly the, it's the same base product as that Pappy goes on to be. Um, so you're getting it at a huge discount, but then like the world kind of caught on to it. So now these bottles of Weller are being sold like for way too outrageous price. And people are like, now, I mean, what was it like a 25, $30 bottle is now like a 70, 80, hundred dollar bottle in some liquor stores because like the, the jig is up. Um, but that well, was, what's a- crazy is even in the last, the last four years, I think is when it really accelerated its growth in price wise. Yeah. Um, maybe three, but I don't know. If, I don't know if you were there at the time at Faith and Flower when we had uh, we had Weller as our well. <laughs> no. It was our it was our well bourbon. Yeah, we had a a private label. It was Weller one o or um, uh, Weller the red label. What's that one again? Oh, um, uh, it's not antique. It's um, I'm blanking on the name. Yeah. It's the red label, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that was our well because it was how how cheap it was. Well. Wow we flew through that in, you know, a little bit and everybody would always ask like, Oh, what's your well for this old fashioned? And it's like, you pull out private label, label Weller for 12 bucks poor. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, or 12 bucks a drink. Actually, I think it was at the time. Uh, uh, that was people's minds were blown. I mean, the, 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 if I remember correctly, wasn't, didn't we have, wasn't like, makers the what was the well for i know it was uh i know buffalo was a well because it was the well primarily yeah primarily just because that was how faith got their happy anyways because they flew through buffalo products like crazy um yeah i look but also I, like we liked our products too so like well yeah, I love, even at ponzi it was I'm, it was buffalo i still think buffalo trace is the go-to in my opinion for a proper uh, like a traditional old fashioned, because I think it plays the best with Angostura bitters. I think those two are a match made in heaven. They're like peanut butter and jelly in my eyes, as opposed to a lot of other bourbons in that category. I don't know why I'm not smart enough to know why I just know what I, I like. And I think they play very well together. Um, so I've always thought that was the go-to pull off the shelf. That's what I make an old fashioned with. 
I might pick something else for a Manhattan, but I think that's my go-to old-fashioned bourbon. Um, all right, let's wrap this up, my friend. I've been, I can talk yeah. spirits with you literally yeah, can, like all day. I just think we end up becoming an audience of two. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just you and I geeking over it. But all right, so right now you guys are doing to go. What what's uh-huh. what's um, you know what's next for you? How 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 is twenty twenty one shaping up for you? What do you, what are you looking forward to this year? Obviously getting life back to normal but um are you branching out are you doing anything uh slightly different um how's it looking for you well personally uh i just took out fishing again so i just went fishing the other day uh on the pier caught four fish it was great um and playing a lot of video games and that's uh my difference because i actually (laughs) have time to do that now uh but uh no professionally it's going to be interesting because I haven't bartended now since March. Right. And I haven't shaken a drink since March. So it's going to be a really uh, hard day of learning, <laughs> relearning when we get back into the bar. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping by the end of the year, my bar is open. Okay. Um, and hopefully transitioning over there um, instead of just expoing and actually like, you know, doing the job I was hired to do. Sure. Um, Everyone else is like, yeah, we can't wait. And I'm like, yeah, I really want to do that. <laughs> um, and, you know, making new cocktails and doing all that. The, um, our cocktails are really interesting at the time. Like we only have one currently on the menu, but it's mm-hmm. a five to five day to nine day process. Um, it's a bottled uh, wine punch, okay. a bottled carbonated wine punch. Um, that is I call it Golden State Punch. It's really awesome. Um, and then we have a. I was launching a uh, Soju Martini right before that. Cool. And that I can keep in bottles because basically anything that I have right now, I can't be behind the bar to shake or stir or do anything. So I right. I have to have those ready made. Yeah. Um, and to temp and like yeah. yeah. So um, everything's pre batched in bottles kept on ice or the ones that are carbonated. It's like a the minimum five day process to carbonate. Um, so it's, you know, I'd, I'd rather, I want to get, I'm going to keep those going, but I really want to start partying again and start like actually being able to make drinks to order, um, and for customers. And, you know, it's really limiting when you can't be back there because you're busy doing something else. Um, so I'm excited for that. Finally, if we can have indoor dining, it'd be incredible because I mean, once, once that all happens and we have indoor dining, I think we're going to be cooking uh with customers like we're going to be really i think we're going to be really busy and full every night we're going to open for brunch and start I, doing that too yeah I, I i don't doubt it man the food is fantastic there uh the wife and i and some friends we went there a mm-hmm. few months back and uh it's it's a uh, killer uh and, you know it's not super duper traditional french cuisine but it it you know you know the wife and yeah. i went to our honeymoon in, in in paris and it and it kind of took us right back there with a couple dishes so uh i highly recommend anyone who's listening to check out pearl in pasadena uh you won't be disappointed um yeah everything is based on tradition but it's a little spin it's like more um approachable right than the stuff you would be the same dish in a fine dining restaurant would probably be the same flavor but it's just a little bit different and more approachable um right. plus dean is a he has, uh, he's Armenian and has like, uh, interesting background with, he's from, uh, New York or no, he's not from New York. He's from the East coast. Yeah. 
think, uh, comes from, he's a dairy farmer, his whole family is. Oh, wow. And so, uh, you know, they had, we had pomegranate molasses to things. And yeah. that's, and our cocoa bond is like incredible with that little bit of pomegranate and it just sweetens yeah, it up and darkens it. Probably hands down one of the best dishes I had in like the past two years. Like it was it's incredible. Really good. Yeah. Really like good. I, I told my wife I would, go, I would come back just for that. Like every day if I could. Um, yeah, the Pokemon's incredible. And then, and then the, and the muscles is so real quick before we sign off. Uh-huh. So my wife and I went to Paris. I don't know if I told you this. So, um, we were staying, staying near Moulin Rouge at an Airbnb for part of the time. And we were suffering from like, we were fine for like three days and then jet lag for some reason hit us like three days after the fact. And we passed out one night. I think the first time we got to Airbnb, we passed out like at, at like five o'clock in the afternoon, just out cold. And before you know it, we woke up, it's like two o'clock in the morning and we're wide awake now. We're like, shit. It's like, we have this LA mentality, like we're fucked. So we realized we're not fucked because there is a bar that's still open and we have the best uh, uh, mussels and fries that we've had, I've ever had. And it was at this, you know, we're outside in the patio uh, in November at a bar watching all the drunks stumbling around. And um, yeah, it was one of the best meals until we went to Pearl and uh, you know, obviously blew it out of the water. Cause this was just some hole in the wall bar that we went to, but yeah, yeah. Uh, highly rec- I cannot recommend uh, Pearl enough to anyone who's, who's listening here in the LA area. Uh, uh, go check it out while you can uh, real quick plug for you guys. What, um, where can they find information at Pearl, what you guys are doing and, and where can they follow you? Uh, pearlrestaurant.com uh, and then pearl underscore restaurant on Instagram. Instagram is probably the thing we're most uh, uh, we're up on. Like yep. she responds to every single message that's ever sent. So awesome. if you never need, want to get in contact or contact them, it's Pauline running it the whole time. Uh, and then me, Scott Oliven on Instagram. It's Scott Sullivan without the middle F. Right. And then uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, I, I, I'll probably have you on again. Cause I, I think we can go deep dive into spirits. I think that would be a good uh, yeah. fun little episode, but, uh, um, yeah, man, uh, it was good talking with you. It's been a minute. So, uh, yeah, there's been another episode of corner yeah, members of the, you. yeah. Uh, okay. another episode of corner members of the service industry. Scott, thank you. Uh, guys, please, if you're not subscribed to our YouTube channel, please go ahead and do that. Uh, give me a thumbs up. That'd be fantastic. Follow us on Spotify and, iTunes and all the bells and whistles and yada, yada, yada. Until next time, I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Scott. Thanks.